called Wait Dog. How do I prove to the world that I'm here and that I'm a man, that I'm not a little kid anymore? And I'll only be young once. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Measure. Hello and welcome to Rightways Radio, hosted by Journeymen. I'm your co-host, Nikki Wilkes. And I'm Alex Craighead. And tonight we have a very special guest joining us from California. We have Lori Woodley. She is the co-founder and executive director at All It Takes, and she's also a parent and child coach. Uh, Lori, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Happy to be here. Thank you. And uh, if you could just start by giving us some background on how, you know, how you got into youth work and maybe some insight as to why you feel so passionate about working with youth. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in uh, 2010, we started All It Takes and uh, to develop a program that would be bigger than what I was already accomplishing on a school site. So prior to 2010, when we started the nonprofit, I was 25 years as a school counselor. My school counseling years were spent in K-8 and primarily grades 6 through 8. Across 25 years, I had some really unique opportunities that most counselors don't get. And in my very first year, I had this opportunity to do a program with youth off-site, um, out of a school and in a camp setting in experiential work. So what I saw with 100 what they called at-risk, whatever that means, um, kids in that year in, oh, about 1997, I was hooked from my very first year. And from the time I was started in school counseling until I left public education in 2000, June of 2015, I continued to grow experiential programs at every school site I was at. Most of my years were in middle school. Um, the remainder, about six of them were in elementary and the others were in middle. And that time, I really recognized over 25 years a, a what I saw as a very big concern in our youth's ability to be resilient, to individually problem solve, to recover from, which is resiliency, but to recover from disappointment, recover from a decision that wasn't something that they liked. Um, and in addition to seeing what was happening with the youth, I was seeing this over parenting in parents where there was this growing fear for everything that could happen to their kids, them not being successful, them getting hurt, um, not being great in school, all, all these concerns. And so I really watched over the course of a quarter of a century, <laughs> this decline in students' ability to what I consider grow up and parents' ability to allow them. And it all came from the right place. Like it's all coming from love and concern, but what I was finding and seeing statistically in the rise of youth risk factors concerned me greatly. So in 2010, we started All It Takes so I could take the programs that I was working and developing on school campuses individually into a much broader um, audience so we could affect many more children than what, we were, what I was affecting just on a single campus. Hmm. What a beautiful story and how it evolved. Um, you know, as a public educator myself, I think it's 
becoming more and more clear that the old model of public education has many, many room for many ways that we could improve it. And I think one of the biggest things that could be changed is that experiential learning aspect and really learning through doing as opposed to strictly memorizing facts. Um, Thank you for speaking to that. And I also heard you mention the helicopter parent. And although I know they mostly have the best of intentions, that oftentimes that can really hinder their youth's growth um, and development as a, as they transition into adolescence and adulthood. Um, I'm curious to hear along that topic of parenting. You know, I think during these busy times, one of the most valuable resources for parents is time and they struggle to find the time in the day to do everything they need, especially when they're putting their children first. So I'd be curious to hear you speak to any strategies and or techniques for parents to help find balance between self-care and being a nurturing parent to their children. Well, I actually believe that it's important for parents to pay attention to that this is their lifetime too. You, if you have more than one child, you're parenting for a minimum of 30 years, um, depending on age ranges. And, you know, these are each person in the family's precious days. Um, we all know people who don't get a really long lifetime. And I feel like, um, Families are not necessarily enjoying each other all that much anymore. And it's all about getting tasks done rather than enjoying the tasks of or just enjoying the journey of each day and the journey of life, which includes the things like housekeeping and grocery shopping and bill paying and getting kids to soccer and all of those those things. And there's just so much focus today on our kids being so successful and giving them every opportunity possible that many of our families and many of our parents are losing themselves. And so I speak, um, I, I have a passion for speaking to parents about that balance so that they take care of themselves and their kids are seen in the modeling of that of what self-care looks like and what care for others looks like. Um, when we choose to have kids, we are choosing the responsibility of raising them. So this is not a, hey, I don't want to do this tonight, so you can just do it on your own, but it's a balance. And so our parents, in my opinion, you know, should take a break once in a while, should miss a soccer game here or there in order to do something that is valuable for them. I think that it's twofold. One, we have happier parents who are more patient and more resilient themselves to the things that their kids throw at them. And the flip side is, is our kids are seeing and hearing that their parents matter, that their time matters, and that they're going to learn to make sure that they allow other people to matter and allow themselves to matter as they grow up and find their own dreams and their own passions and fall into what that is for them. Hmm. Yeah. And the part that speaks, um, that speaks to, you know, something that I really value as a parent too, in, um, you know, consistency and how, and how we show up, you know, as a parent to our children. And, um, you know, what, what, what I kind of got a hit on as you were speaking was this idea of, you know, being clear in the commitments that we do make and feeling like, you know, when we're caring for ourselves as parents, um, or as coaches or as mentors, or, you know, in any sort of, um, mentor or parent role to youth, when we're clear about those boundaries, you know, I feel like, and speaking for myself, I feel like I can um, be more consistent in those commitments that I do make, which is to say, you know, if I'm caring for myself in the right way, 
and I'm clear with my child or my children or, um, you know, my players as a lacrosse coach, um, that they, that they can expect me to show up in my wholeness when I do show up and to say, Hey, you know, I can't be there that day. I need, I need a day off. Um, and they know that that means when I say I show up on Monday, that I'm a hundred percent there, that I'm there, you know, with everything I got and they're going to get the best of me. I think we all should be doing that. And I think that it's our, it's an obligation and a responsibility to be present with whatever we're in. Even if we're not taking care of ourselves, we're still supposed to do that. The problem is, is that we're not as capable of doing that if we're not taking care of ourselves. So it's really not, in my opinion, okay for us. We're human, so we have a slip here and there. That's not what I'm talking about. But the general pattern is, is we need to be present for our kids when that's the time that that is, whether it's, you know, putting our social media down or putting, you know, having our kids put theirs down so that we have that time that we're centered on each other uh, and then allowing there to be time for us not to be centered. That, Nikki, that's just, a, just <laughs> to me, um, a, a lost sense of what we're supposed to do as parents. And, mm. and so many parents think that if they take time for themselves, it is uh, it, somehow they're disappointing their kids. I had a parent, a mom tell me once in a class, when I told her that I wanted her to go have a massage and not go to a soccer practice, she, she, it, it was like a, a visible twitching that happened for her as she just physically felt the impact <laughs> of of like what that would do to her child. And I'm like, mm -hmm. it will tell your child that you're taking care of yourself and you're going to go do something enjoyable for you while she goes and does something enjoyable for her. And you have a friend who will bring her home from that soccer practice and all will be right with the world when you're back <laughs> together for dinner. <laughs> Thank you for that example. I, I think that kind of perfectly, perfectly puts a, puts an image to what we were describing here. Um, Earlier in this conversation, you you know you kind of um, led into this idea of I guess life expectancy and life stage, and another you know another um, I think tool that you've brought out in conversation with me is this 1882, and I think this has some real power for us to use as um, as parents, as mentors, as those who work with youth and and anyone, actually, not just youth workers. But I'm curious um, if you'd be willing to speak to that a little bit. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, I call it the 1882 rule. Um, let's bless all of our children with 100 years. Like, I want 100 years. I wish that for you, too. We wish it for all of our children. You know, 100 healthy, productive, gracious um, years of, you know, of successes and, you know, giving and generosity and all of those beautiful things that we hope adulthood be becomes for kids um, as they turn into adults. And so when, when we look at the 1882 rule at 100 years, the day they turn 18, the law says you have no say anymore. We can't bail them out of school, out of issues that they get into. We can't help them at university. We can't help them at a dentist appointment. We can't help them at a doctor's appointment. We get to pay all the bills, but we don't actually get to have any of the information. And that was a shock for me the first time I couldn't like make a doctor's appointment without getting my child to sign a piece of paper. Um, and it, it just, it hits you really hard as a parent. Like, wow, I have no say anymore. Can't help them if they get into trouble. Um, with the law, it just everything changes. 
And so I look at this as our job and our primary responsibility as parents is to use the first 18% of their lifetime to prepare them to do an amazing, healthy job with the other 82% of their life. When they're on their own, when they are the models for others, when they are employees or employers, when they are partners um, and whatever that looks like for them in friendships and relationships and romance, all of those areas, they have a job to do. And I think we're preparing them in those first 18 years to do a good job with them. I think it's our responsibility to do that. Couldn't agree more. And it's such a great opportunity for parents and teachers to really step up and show by example the way to live a healthy and happy life and really support our youth as they make that transition into becoming an adult themselves. I had a, I had a dad when I said this at one of my workshops and he looked at me like his eyes were big and wide and he's like, oh my gosh, all I think about every day is making my child happy. I've never thought about the fact that life doesn't always try to make us happy all the time. So I save her from everything. I protect her from everything. I want to make sure she has everything and every opportunity. And it hasn't even occurred to me that she's not, that someone won't be there to do that for her. And she's going to have to do that on her own and find her way. And it was so, it was like this aha, like ding, ding bell that went off for him. And it, it was, it was a beautiful moment because he really saw that he was not necessarily doing her a favor by making sure her life was always happy. Because in those 82% of lifetime, there will be really hard things that happen. And we all know that life is just life and it's great and it's hard and it equally runs its journey through the through through the the webs that we weave it's not always pleasurable and we have to know that we can get through the stuff that's not always easy absolutely absolutely and you know i think there's a lot of pressure on parents especially with that notion of 1882 to pack in those 18 years with everything they know and really sharing their knowledge and their experience with their children um, but I also can find that it's a double-edged sword sometimes, you know, as a teacher, and you may have experienced this as well in your, your time working with youth, that the more I talk, the longer I talk, then I notice that I'm starting to lose my students' engagement, um, and they start to drop off after a certain point. And I know parents often have a tendency to go on tangents, as teachers do as well. I'm curious to hear your perspective on the notion of talk less, listen more. <laughs> so what I coach parents to do in my trainings or my seminars is to reduce to 10% of what we actually say to our kids. So if you're going to, whatever you want to say in a thousand words, you got to say it in a hundred. Whatever you're going to say in a hundred words, you got to say it in 10 because our kids here very little, A, B, C, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and it is one of the most significant challenges parents have. They want to convince their kids that they should be doing the right thing for all the right reasons. And that is not something kids are capable of until exec executive function really develops and that is later than it used to be. It used to be somewhere between 
13, 14, and 18, 19, and it has shifted. Um, and it's not hitting for some kids until, say, 25 now. And the executive function piece where you can actually make a decision because it feels right, because internally the wiring that we have says, yeah, you know, I think I can handle the disappointment I'm going to face if I don't tell that lie and I actually tell the truth here. It's okay. Like there's a, you know, when we're little, no matter how much our kids nod at us, say, yes, I get it. And, you know, parents are like, they just told me yes. And an hour later, they were doing the same thing again. I wanted to pull my hair out. That's like a common thread. Well, it's because we've taught our kids language and a significant, sophisticated, advanced ability to use language against us. And so they have language from the year that they're like three, four. And we like look at these words that are coming out of these kids' mouths and we're like, wow, Am I crazy? So our spider sense says, hmm, I think I'm being worked. But our brain and our heart is saying, well, maybe it's kind of a compelling story. So maybe I should let them have that candy. And they're so good at it. I call it word wizards. They're really mm. great at language. But what is not there is the, de the, the brain development to match the language. And at those younger ages, the only thing kids do the right thing for is because of the outcome, not because they should and they're wired to have this grand empathy for why they should do the right thing. And it really is extrinsic. See, this is the conflict. Extrinsic motivation is what drives young kids. And we want it to be intrinsic Parents want our kids to do the right thing and make the right decisions for intr intrinsic reasons. They don't have the capability yet. I guess my first response as you were describing this trend in executive function setting in later is like, whoa, why? Um, that might be a whole separate topic, but I'm curious if you have any insight into maybe some of the correlations or perhaps causations for that delay. You know, what is... What do you feel? Maybe what intuitively, what do you feel like is is delaying the um, the onset of, of solid executive function in our youth? I think that it's delayed um, establishment of self-esteem. I think it's too much done for our kids. Executive function comes from within. Self-esteem comes from within. It can't be given to us. So because we answer our kids' questions for them, because we tell them what to do, because we say, say thank you, because we say, say please, and don't like just pull something back and let them think. We don't give them as much freedom to think and problem solve for themselves. We don't give them the space to be deeply wounded and hurt and held their hands but not tell them it's all okay. It's not okay. If you're not feeling good, it's not okay. If you fail a test and feel bad, it's, it's okay to feel that internally, but it's not the teacher's fault. So as soon as we as parents continue to say it's somebody else's fault and we protect our kids from those things that happen because life happens, life doesn't care how we feel. It just lifes. It just does. It just goes on. <laughs> and so as long as, you know, we keep protecting our kids from those things, we're teaching them that they don't have the ability to be resilient. I just did a talk the other night to about 75 family families 
um, on connecting with their teenagers. And, you know, they, you know, they think that saving them is the better thing to do. And the reality is, is when we save them, when we tell them what to think, when we tell them what to say, when we, we bail them out from a paper, we excuse their bad mood, we excuse their snarkiness, and we excuse it for all these reasons, we're basically telling them that they're not capable of doing that themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the takeaway. Yep, the um, takeaway, yeah. even if you never, ever put language to that, if the feeling mm-hmm. is, is they don't, my, they don't believe in me, I'm not capable, so why should I try? So then when we mm-hmm. want them to try, they throw a big fit, and then we're like, okay, they don't know how. I can't tell you how many parents say to me, they can't, she won't. I'm like, mm, she's 14. She doesn't get to say what she will or not do. Mm-hmm. You know, she won't do homework. Well, you know what? When you're 18, you get to choose that. And, uh, you know, I think it's our job in between that to build the connections and foster and support and not do it for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, just to, to kind of summarize a term that, that I use that seems to be fitting with this is the freedom to fail. And something that we, you know, cultivate in our experiences um, up here is is a safe container to take healthy risks and actually fail and be witnessed in that and then also supported in the resiliency process. And, um, you know, I witness in, in culture today in schools and sports and that sort of thing that there's really an, an insulation taking place and this fear of failure and wanting to protect um, youth and adults from kind of the sadness of a loss. And as you've named, like life just life does its thing, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, learning to cope and learning to, to, you know, to build stronger after a loss and, and be appreciative for what still is and what's coming is certainly a skill, not just inherent for youth to have, but for adults, teachers, mentors, you know, all of us. Oh, absolutely. And, and in our programs that all it takes, so I've been talking about my parent programs, but the youth programs, you know, many of the activities the kids are not successful at and you see implosion and you see it personally or you see it as a group or and and they have to recover. We don't jump in. And it's so interesting the the number one challenge for training new mentors who are supportive of the process for the students who are there is to not go in and save them, to not tell them to go do this or go do that or what, or, you know, as an outsider, you can see what's going wrong and you have all these ideas and you just want to go tell them. And our big thing is say nothing and it kills teachers and it, it's so hard. And we're, and I, and one of the biggest takeaways from teachers that come to the program and watch our students go through this is how capable their kids really are. And again, it's in the word wizarding that the kids have commit have, you know, tell the teachers they can't. And it's our job to, you know, many humans just sort of lean towards lazy. And if someone's going to do it for us, we're fine with that. Less students, less humans are driven, highly driven, without having the scaffolding and the boundaries to help us learn how the, that the, the results of being driven or at least assertive are feel better than the results of being complacent or non, um, non-inspired or non-engaged. Yeah. It's often easy to fall into that trap when you've got people that are doing everything for you. Uh, and as a teacher, I know that it is quite challenging sometimes to really step back and just let the students figure it out when they're stuck. Um, 
But I think we can both agree that some of the biggest growth happens in those uncomfortable times when they're really challenged and stepping outside of their comfort zone. Well, I completely agree with you. And that's when self-esteem grows. Again, self-esteem comes from accomplishing. It comes from work. It comes from seeing the outcomes of what we've created. And it comes from recovering from, like you said, Nikki, the failure. We can, like knowing we can recover, we can pull our bootstraps up and we can hurt and fight it and be upset and be concerned and all those things, but we can survive it. And if we really train our kids to know that or educate them or inspire them, facilitate the programming so that they know that, then that's when they win. That's when executive function does start to creep in. It's like, oh, it feels good to do this. I'll do it for that reason. Not because I'll get a reward or I'll get a punishment, but because I like how I feel with it. Um, that's, that's a very big challenge for parents to, to stop talking so much. <laughs> let, <laughs> let their kids decide for themselves. Pull back all these rewards that they, you know, it's another thing I don't believe that we should be doing. We shouldn't give re- rewards for expected normal appropriate human behavior. Mm. Nobody should get a reward for helping with the dishes. Nobody should get a reward for being nice to their sister for one evening. Right? It's like uh, there's so many that we've um, we almost over reward and you know a lot of people, you know, do the every not everyone gets a trophy. It's bigger than that. I think we're over rewarding even in telling our kids how great they are. And we should never say the word you're great or you're so great. You're amazing. We should be targeting the specific traits that were amazing. Why did I say that? You know, I just watched you share with your friend. That is so generous. That's a, I just love that about you, that you're so generous. Very specific. You know, I really appreciate that you work so hard in math. I know it's not easy for you. Not, wow, you did great on that math test. You're awesome. Like, we sort of have these blanket approval, blanket um statements that we say that tell our kids that there's just nothing wrong with them. And if depending on how you label the word wrong, I just call it strengths and weaknesses, because guess what, we all have those. And if we tell kids that their weakness is great, that is not helping develop healthy adults. It's not developing our kids into the process of executive function mastery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, I'm I'm hearing a, an importance of discerning between, um, you know, celebrating or acknowledging, and a word that I really like, which is witnessing um, the behavior versus like the identity of the person by saying like, oh, you're so great, you know, you're everything you do is great, um, but being specific there and saying like, you know, the way you showed up here and and um, this action you did, I really enjoyed that, or or I saw that that made this other person happy. And, you know, differentiating between like identity blanket judgments about the, the person, the youth, the child, and then, you know, identifying the action, um, how it is that they that they showed up and, and really naming that for the person to give some clarity around it. And, um, you know, related to this are, are three words that I see, you know, having been to a couple of your youth camps, um, I see them everywhere on the All It Takes website, on your T-shirts. And these three words for me really kind of capture this essence um, as a process that's super simple. And the words are notice, choose, act. And it, you know, I would be, 
I would be really grateful if you could just speak to, you know, why those words have power for you and how those, um, you know, how those words really guide your work with youth. Well, um, actually it guides our work with my work with adults now, all of my trainings and our youth. And so, um, it is, it's an easy way for us to stay purposeful in the world. That's how I look at it. So, um, we can't make any kind of a change for the better, um, for anything, if we don't first notice where change could be valuable. Like we can't improve um, the life of a senior citizen who lives next door that we could contribute to. We can't improve our ability to read better. We can't improve our ability to communicate better with a partner. Uh, we can't improve anything if we don't first notice that there's a place for improvement. And we might be mastering something and still find room for improvement. But if we, I, I kind of think of it as numbness, like if we're walking through life numb and not paying attention to things that for ourselves internally, our thought patterns. I talk about the little voice, the one right now that the two of you are going, what little voice in your head? That one, that little voice. You know, I talk about it. If it tells you that you're not perfect, you're not great, um, you have too big of a nose, you're not smart enough then that little voice, if we don't notice that our little voice tells us those kinds of things, then we can't retrain our little voice to tell us something different. And so I love the notice. It's, you know, it's consciousness or purposeful action. Like it's, it, it's, it's just an easy word and everybody can relate to noticing. And then so notice improvement for ourselves, others, or environment. That's how I speak to it. And then choosing is looking at what we have and whether that's what we want. You know, when we choose, we, you know, choose, do I want a different outcome? So I've noticed that um, I may be really moody with my kids. I'm just really kind of just, I'm not really happy around them. I'm kind of always, you know, on edge and we're always just racing and nothing, just I'm not really laughing with my kids anymore. That's one of the big ones that a lot of families I work with are finding. Everything's about tasks and work and just ah, chaos and no, no laughter. So choose, like, do I want that to continue or do I want it to look different? And if I want it to look different, what are some of the steps for me to get there? Now, noticing and choosing are both cerebral, like everything is done in your head. You notice it quietly. You choose like, I want something different. I want to laugh more. Um, and, you know, it's that definition of insanity. Once we notice and choose, if we don't do something different than we've always done before, we probably aren't going to get a different outcome. And so in act, that's what our that's that's us in the world. We're going to speak differently. We're going to act differently. We're going to do something physically, audibly different than what we've done before that backs up the choice we made to have a different outcome that backs up the thing that I noticed that I want to change. And so I can teach that. I have schools right now doing that as their like classroom management, as their school-wide outdoor program that they're teaching kids to relate to kindergarten all the way to eighth grade. Uh, I have one principal that had a young, a program for younger kids. And he's like, no way we can teach. We can, it's so easy. Notice choose act. I can teach a kindergartner that, you know? And so in like classroom settings or in parenting, I'm like, you know, you, we can point out to our kid, notice what's going on for you right now. You know, choose the outcome you want. 
because, you know, for parents, it's like um, the phone stays with you or the phone is mine. And then you're going to act towards it because now you know. But what happens then is all responsibility for outcomes goes back to the person who's making the choices and doing the actions. And I'm really big on self-responsibility and accountability. And so when we use the language of notice, choose, act, no longer are we pointing out, we're looking in. And then we're stepping into our power to accept the outcomes. Whether we like the outcomes or not, there still are outcomes that we, that we created. And in that is power to do something different or to feel really good about what we did create. What a beautiful notion and an empowering thing for youth to keep in mind that, that element of choice and to really equate that, that choice and that action back to responsibility and the potential consequences of what you choose to do in your day. It really does give the power back to the individual. Um, I really love that. Thank you for sharing. Um, and I'd like to encourage our listeners, if you are from the L.A. area, please take a look at the All It Takes program that they are offering down in Los Angeles. It's allittakes.org. And Lori, I also understand that you're currently working on a book. Could you tell us more about that? Well, I have a couple of books kind of that are in the works. Um, one of them will publish in the next few months. I have a chapter uh, in a compilation book with Janet Bray Atwood, Chris Atwood, and uh, Marcy Shimoff, who are number one uh, New York Times bestsellers. And there's a book, uh, there's a chapter in there that I'll have that I'm very excited about. It's just a story of my life and the Notice Choose Act and how to take on responsibility for ourselves as adults. Um, I'm currently writing a book about a lot of the work that I have been doing in Standing Rock and both some of the, uh, the work and some of the, what's being done there on a bigger human place than just stopping a pipeline. That's, you know, been a big part of my world for the last eight months. And now I'm working, I'll actually going to Standing Rock tomorrow morning and I'll be working with the youth council there. We will be bringing a bunch of the youth from Standing Rock Reservation where they have a one in four suicide rate and a greater than one in two attempt rate. And the youth on the reservation are so passionate about changing what's been going on. And so I have so much to say about that, but um, that is a book that I'm working on right now. And then also uh, writing another book on these parent philosophies I have, um, because I I'm a little bit different in my focus on parents being committed to staying in joy for their lifetime. Like, this is my life. These are my days too. I'm going to choose joy. So how do I choose joy with my kids when things feel chaotic? Well, and so I teach the language. How do, how do you talk to your kids without them being wrong, but being in a new commitment to what life is going to look like within the family structure, whatever that is. <laughs> Sounds like, um, you don't have a lot of spare time and we deeply appreciate you spending some of, you know, your very valuable moments with us as, you know, as someone who had the privilege of, of actually being with you out at Standing Rock for some time, I, I just want to, you know, name your role in, in bringing that community together and bringing uh, more eyes and ears to that movement. And, um, I want to thank you for the invite to come down to LA and participate in the All It Takes programs. And at a time, I understand that Kendrick uh, will also be joining. Kendrick was a, a young man who actually spoke <clears throat> with President Obama as, as a youth voice for um, indigenous rights in that area. And 
uh, I want to thank you for that invite and just let you know I'll, I'll do everything in my power to be there. Yeah, Lori, we just want to thank you for your time. It's really been great chatting with you this evening. Thank you for the invitation. I want to thank our listeners and our sponsors this evening, The Voice of Vashon here on Vashon Island, KBSH. And this is Right Ways Radio, hosted by Journeyman.